So we continue in our series through the Gospel of John. And what we're doing here, going, walking through John's Gospel, is we're discovering who Jesus is and how we must respond to him. Did you know that's the question of your lifetime and my lifetime? It's the question of all history. Is who is Jesus and what are you going to do with him? Those are the two biggest questions. Who do you believe Jesus to be and how does that change your life? Or does it change your life? Those are the questions. That's the question that contains eternity. We're going to talk about that in just a moment. But these are things that we're discovering together, and then we have to answer that question for ourselves. We have to ask that question, who is Jesus, and what am I going to do with him? Today we're going to be introduced, well not introduced, because we just ran into him a few weeks ago. We're going to run back into John the Baptist. You remember when we saw him in John chapter 1 just a few weeks ago? Kind of an eccentric kind of guy. Uh, he reminds me kind of the Duck Dynasty guys, kind of a, a wilderness guy. You know, I'm sure he had a beard and he wore camel's hair and he ate bugs and wild honey. Uh, just kind of a wild man a little bit. And so we, we, introduced, we were introduced to John the Baptist in John chapter 1. And John the Baptist was baptizing people, which we learned was a, a symbol of the cleansing from sin that was taking place in their life, and the Jewish religious leaders, they came to John the Baptist, and what was the question they asked him? Anyone remember that question? What was the question they asked? Who are you? Right? They asked him, who are you? And they asked him, are you Elijah? They thought maybe he was the reincarnate Elijah. They thought maybe he was Elijah. Then they asked him, are you the prophet? And see, Moses had told the people of Israel that a prophet was going to come, the prophet, that was going to come, and he was going to uh, testify about the Messiah. So they thought, well, maybe he was the prophet. He said, no, I'm not the, the prophet. Then they flat out asked him, are you the Messiah? He said, no, I'm not the Messiah. He said, I'm the one that bears witness about the Messiah. He's the forerunner, and he explained, and we learned that John the Baptist was the one to, that was setting the stage for Jesus to come. He was preparing the people for Christ. Now we're going to come back now here in John chapter 3. We're coming back to see John the Baptist in kind of a very interesting situation. And we're going to learn more about this and more about his purpose and how he explained his purpose and how it applies to our lives. So turn over to John chapter 3 and look at verse 22 that Rob Sykes read for us. John chapter two or 3, and let's look at verse 22 there. John chapter 3 verse 22. And it says this, After this... Jesus and his disciples went to the Judean countryside where he spent time with them and baptized. John also was baptized in Aon near Salem because there was plenty of water there. People were coming and being baptized since John had not been yet, yet been thrown into prison. Then a dispute arose between John's disciples and a Jew about purification. So they came to John and told him, Rabbi, the one you testi testified about who is with you across the Jordan, is baptizing, and everyone is going to him. John responded, No one can receive anything unless it has been given to him from heaven. You, you, you yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Messiah, but I have been sent ahead of him. He who has the bride is the groom, but the groom's friend who stands by and listens for him rejoices greatly at the groom's voice. 
So this joy of mine is complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. So here what we have is Jesus and his disciples begin to start baptizing. And some of, the, uh, some of John the Baptist's followers, the disciples, and a lot of times we don't think about that. We think about Jesus was the only one who had disciples and followers, but John the Baptist did too. And some of John the Baptist's disciples, followers, came to him and said that Jesus, who John testified, what we just talked about in John chapter 1, that Jesus was baptizing. And what did they say here in, in verse 26? Everyone is going to him. What's happening here? Crowds of people are going to be baptized by Jesus. Now, there's an exaggeration here happening, right? Because verse 26, these followers of John the Baptist are saying, everyone's going to him. But remember up in John chapter, uh, uh, verse 23, it says people were coming and being baptized. So there's an exaggeration happening here. These followers are saying everyone's being baptized in Jesus, but it says in verse 23, not everyone was being baptized by Jesus. What's happening here? Crowds of people had begun to follow Jesus. More and more people were following Jesus, being baptized by Jesus. And the followers of John the Baptist are having a little bit of a freak out over this. They're saying, whoa, 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 what's happening? More people are following Jesus than John the Baptist. More people were coming to Jesus to be baptized rather than to John the Baptist, and this was upsetting to John's disciples. Isn't that interesting? That when it's kind of human nature here, right? In human nature, when things aren't going our way, when we're not happy about something, what happens? Exaggeration. Everyone's going to be baptized by him. No, they were still baptizing, it wasn't everyone. But they were obviously not happy about what was happening because they were exa- exaggerating what was happening here. Well, John the Baptist, he gives an interesting response here. He says that no one can have anything unless it has given to them from heaven. Then John the Baptist again emphasizes what he said about himself in John 1. He says that he was not the Messiah. And then he gives an illustration about who he is. And it's a really good illustration to give an example to show this is what my purpose is. And what was that example? He compares himself to the friend of the groom at a wedding that stands off to the side and rejoices and is exciting about the marriage of a bride and a groom. And our modern day vernacular, the best man. So John the Baptist is saying, I'm the best man. During this time period, they called it the friend of the groom, we call it the best man. But the friend of the groom was an assistant to the groom. He was there to make sure everything went smoothly for the groom. And he would make preliminary arrangements for the wedding ceremony. So he wouldn't just show up and stand off to the side and be happy for the bride and the groom and sign the marriage license like we do today. This guy had a really important role. He would help plan the ceremony. Because he was basically, his job was to set the stage for that wedding ceremony. This friend of the bride, he was not in the spotlight. It wasn't about him. He was behind the scenes making sure everything was just right. And what brought him joy in that situation was not being in the spotlight, but the joy of the bride and the groom being married. So John the Baptist is saying, that's who I am. I am the friend of the groom. Well, when he's saying the friend of the groom, who's the groom here? 
pretty obvious, Sunday school answer, Jesus. Jesus is the groom here. And so he says, I am the friend of the groom here. I am to set the stage for Jesus. I'm here to prepare the people for him. I am here to rejoice when the bridegroom are united. And then he says this famous phrase. He says, I must, he must increase. He must get the spotlight. It's all about Jesus. And I must decrease. John the Baptist is saying, I must fade into the background. And Jesus must increase, become even more prominent. See, even in Jesus' growing popularity here in John uh, 3 at the end of this chapter, John the Baptist, he's finding his joy and fulfillment in his role in preparing the people, the bride for Jesus. It's not about him. It's not about the number of followers for him. It's not about the number of people he's baptizing. He's finding his fulfillment in his role in preparing the people for Christ. He's preparing the bride for Christ. Now, you know today who is called the bride of Christ? The church, you and I. We're called the bride of Christ. The church, we his people. But what's interesting as we begin to apply this and understand the cultural context here that you know who needs to be the friend of the groom, Jesus? Us as well. Us, the church as well. So here's the reality for you and I. If you claim to be a believer in Jesus Christ, a follower of him, when a person's a believer and follower in Jesus Christ, they, they understand and realize who Jesus is, and they're always sharing him. It's always about Jesus. It's never about the follower. It's always about Jesus. There's always a, a point and direction to Jesus. John the Baptist here, he's sharing Jesus. He's making him obvious, making him non-ignorable. Because the believer, when a person believes in Jesus Christ, they understand what Christ has done for them and what they could not do for themselves. And so it's about Christ, not the individual. So for you and I as Christians, for us, it's all about Christ. It all revolves around Him. So our mission is the same mission as John the Baptist. We are to function as the friend of the groom for Christ and preparing his bride and sharing Christ with people. So each one of us, we need to be pointing people to Christ. As a church, as a corporate body of believers, we need to be all about Jesus. It has to be all centered around him. In our worship, in our discipleship, in our fellowship, in our giving, it has to all be about Christ. It has to revolve around him. It's all about making Jesus big because he is the one who changes lives. Here's the reality that I have to be confronted with all the time as a pastor, and each one of us has to be confronted with. You and I can't change lives. We can't do it. We as a church, there's no great grand strategy that we can come up with to change lives. We as the church are in the business of life change. So if we can't change lives, then we have to ask the question, well, then who can? It's only Christ that can. So as a church, we must, he must increase. Christ must increase and we must decrease. As individuals, as Christians, 
He, Jesus, must increase and we must decrease. Who cares if someone goes to this church or that church if we want people to know Christ? It's not about what church we go to. It's about knowing Christ. If we at Leewood Baptist Church, our motivating desire needs to be for Jesus to increase, for Him to get glory, and for us as the church, Leewood Baptist Church here on the corner of 83rd and State Line, to fade in the background. To fade away so that people in our community and world will see Jesus and not us. And that's difficult. Because from the time we're born, we're taught it's all about us. Our culture tells us it's all about us. But the life of the Christian and Christianity, and there's freedom, great freedom in this, it's not about us. It's about Christ. See, John the Baptist here, he's not freaked out by Jesus baptizing more people than, than him. No, he finds joy and fulfillment in people following Jesus. So the question we have to ask ourselves, are we finding our joy and fulfillment in life in serving and pointing people to Christ? It's not about us. It's about him. I think there's often times in our lives when as Christians we're evaluating our lives and looking at it and, and to be honest it's not all peaches and cream uh, as in the Christian life and we're always looking for joy and fulfillment as followers of Christ and we can have a difficult time finding that but if you're looking for joy and fulfillment as a Christian let me encourage you to do something serve serve point people to Christ you might find a small amount of joy and fulfillment in your life, making it about yourself, but it won't last. Serve. Serve Jesus. Help prepare the bride of Christ. Pour your life into other people. One person that uh, Marilyn and I saw about, uh, about that uh, when we were in, in Alabama as a youth pastor, there was a guy named Ken Kelly. I love Ken Kelly. In fact, I would love to have Ken Kelly come here. Um, he, would, he would knock all of us over. I mean, he was high energy Ken Kelly, like if I, sometimes whenever I'm down and I feel like an energy boost, I think, oh, I need to call Ken Kelly. I need to talk to Ken. But Ken Kelly, he was a, a former pastor in um, our church, but he just served. He was also an old peanut farmer from Georgia as well. And Ken was a dynamic personality, great preacher, big personality, high energetic, had a touch of Pentecostal in him a little bit, but that's all right. And he was, he was just a great guy, but it was never about Ken Kelly. Ken Kelly, the reason why Ken found so much joy in his life, he was always about serving other people. There was times when I would go up to our church there in Birmingham and I would walk up there and our custodian would be sick or sometimes just not show up and there would be Ken cleaning the toilets of our church. He didn't care. Ken would be in our kitchen cooking food for a homeless ministry in downtown Birmingham, just doing it by himself. Ken would pay money out of his own pocket and go to Romania and help train pastors to pastor in Romania. Pay for himself. It was never about Ken. It was always about Christ with Ken. And even in his home life, it's easy to see people serve in church, but even his home life, 
Ken served his wife, Marianne, well, and their daughter, Bunny. See, Bunny was born with a lot of disabilities. She was deaf, had a lot of emotional um, uh, issues going on in her life. She was in and out of the hospital because of some of these issues, but I never saw Ken get down about it. He would serve Marianne. He would serve Bunny because it was never about Ken. It was about Christ in his life. And I believe in eternity, the impact that Ken Kelly had, we'll, we'll never know here on earth the impact he's had on lives because it was never about Ken. It was about Christ and his life. Let's keep going. John chapter 3. Let's keep going to verse 31. It says here, The one who comes from above is above all. The one who is from the earth is earthly and speaks in earthly terms. The one, the one who comes from heaven is above all. He testifies to what he has seen and heard, and yet no one accepts his testimony. The one who has accepted his testimony has affirmed that God is true. For the one whom God sent speaks God's words, since he gives the Spirit without measure... The Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hands. The one who believes in the Son has eternal life. But the one who rejects the Son will not see life. Instead, the wrath of God remains on him. So here what John the Baptist is doing. He first up there in verse 30, he says, He must increase and I must decrease. And now John the Baptist is giving the why. This is why I must decrease and why he must increase. This is why it's not about me. Here John the Baptist, he's given the reason. He says because Jesus, and this is not there, but there's a doctrine that we're going to talk about here in just a moment. He's saying Jesus is supreme, not a supreme pizza. Okay, that's not what he's talking about. He's not talking about variety. He's saying Jesus is supreme. He's talking about the supremacy of Christ as a doctrine. Now when we talk about the supremacy of Christ, what, is, what are we talking about? We're talking about the supremacy of Christ here, and it's a doctrine surrounding the authority that Jesus has because he is God. And that's what John the Baptist is saying here. John the Baptist is saying, Jesus must increase, and I must decrease, because he's supreme. He's talking about the supremacy of Christ. Webster's Dictionary defines supreme as highest rank or authority, or highest in degree or equality. In essence... There is none better. The supreme of something is its ultimate. So when we talk about the supremacy of Christ, when John the Baptist is talking about here, he is talking about Jesus is the ultimate. Jesus is the ultimate in power, in glory, authority, and importance. So he's even more making it not about himself, but about Christ. He's giving the reason here of why he must, Jesus must increase and John the Baptist must decrease. John the Baptist is saying he's supreme. Now, I think we need to ask the question here. John the Baptist was a pretty famous guy here in Israel. He had a really big following. He was a, kind of a religious celebrity during this time. People had come to him. John the Baptist had taught multitudes and multitudes of people. He had baptized thousands upon thousands of people. So when I read this, even as a pastor, when I read this, I ask the question, how could John the Baptist get to the place in his life 
to where at one point he had a pretty big following, and now he's saying, he must increase, I must decrease. How could John the Baptist get to that point in his life? John the Baptist shares that with us here, verses 31 through 36, because John the Baptist understood his place compared to Christ. John the Baptist is saying, Jesus is big, I'm small. John the Baptist says here, look again in verse 31. John the Baptist says in verse 31, two times he says, he's above all. Verse 35, he says, all things have been given into his hands. The Apostle Paul in Colossians, he even expounded on the supremacy of Christ. There's a parallel here. So turn over to Colossians 1, chapter, uh, chapter 1, verses 15 through 20. Turn over there. Colossians 1, 15 through 20. Same allusion, same thing that uh, the Apostle Paul is talking about here. The supremacy of Christ. Colossians 1, 15 through 20, we're going to read this. It says, he is the image of the invisible God, talking about Christ. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and by him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. If you're a highlighter, circler, underliner, underline that. So that he might come to have first place in everything. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile everything to himself whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Whoa. This passage is a whole sermon in and of itself, which we don't have time to dive into today. But Jesus is supreme, folks. Faith family, Jesus is supreme. It's all about him. It's all about him. We follow a savior, a rescuer, who is supreme, and we must understand our place compared to Christ. It's interesting, you see here in Colossians 1, but if you look in other, in other of, of Paul's writings, and all of his greetings, what does he say? The Apostle Paul, a famous preacher of Christ, leader of a megachurch, lots of people reading his books. What's his, is that what he's saying? No. What's he saying? A slave or a servant of Christ. Even the Apostle Paul understood his place as compared to Christ. And we must understand our place, of, to, uh, our place compared to Christ. We are servants. We're nothing more. We're nothing less. We're servants. We're slaves of Christ. But turn back over here to John chapter 13, or 3, 13, where did that come from? We talked about that Wednesday night in our State Line Institute. That's where it came from. John 3. Turn back over to John 3 and look at that last verse and we're done. John 3, verse 36. Because here, what's interesting. The supremacy of Christ, it's a really important doctrine. And we can know a lot about it. But folks, I want to show you this in verse 36. Eternity is at stake about our belief in who Christ is. Eternity is at stake 
in whether we believe in the supremacy of Christ or not. So look at verse 36. Here's what John the Baptist says. The one who believes in the Son has eternal life. But the one who rejects the Son will not see life. Instead, the wrath of God remains on him. John the Baptist here is saying, if you want eternal life, you must believe the Son. We must believe in the supremacy of Jesus Christ for salvation. Now let's talk about belief for just a moment. Just a couple weeks ago, Steve Dighton, preached from John chapter 3, talked a lot about belief. All throughout the Gospel of John, there's a common theme. In fact, the purpose of the book is so that we might believe in Jesus Christ as the Son of God for eternal life. This entire book's about strengthening our belief. So let's just stop for a moment and talk about belief. Because I think in our American culture, we're really confused about belief. What we're talking about here is not intellectual belief. What do I mean by intellectual belief? We believe that 2 plus 2 is what? 4. We believe that. That's intellectual belief. We have intellectual belief all the time. Historically, we have intellectual belief all the time. Like we believe in George Washington, right? Did anyone see George Washington? Anyone meet him face to face? Okay, I thought maybe we did, but we don't. We believe in George Washington, but we never saw them. None of us were eyewitnesses to George Washington. He's the father of our country, but you know what? He ultimately died. He's dead. You can go to Mount Vernon in Virginia and see where the dude's buried. He's dead. But we believe that George Washington actually existed. That's not the kind of belief that John the Baptist is talking about here. That's not the kind of belief that Jesus is talking about with Nicodemus earlier in John 3. Because here's the reality about belief. Even Satan and his demons believe who Jesus is. You say, Adam, that's crazy. Even Satan and his demons believe in Jesus? Yeah, yeah, write this verse down. You look at it later. Go home and look at it. James 2, verse 19. James, the writer of the book of James, brother of Jesus. He says, you believe that God is one. And he says, good. It's like James says, you believe that God is one. Good for you. Here's a sticker for that. And he says, even the demons believe and they shudder. So when we, re- when we talk about belief and we're pulling this whole issue of belief together, believing's not enough. Just believing that Jesus existed is not enough because even the, the, the demons believe it. Jesus even told his disciples in Matthew 7 and verse 21, Jesus told his disciples, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. On that day, that last day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name or preach in your name? Did we not drive out demons in your name and do many miracles in your name? Then I will announce to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you lawbreakers. That's stunning, right? Because in our American culture, in our, our Christian, Christianity that we've developed here in the United States, it's pretty easy for us to say, just believe in Jesus and do good things. But Jesus is saying here, that's not enough. 
That's not good enough. So when we're talking about belief here, and John the Baptist talks about belief here in verse 36, when he talks about the one who believes in the Son has eternal life, what is he talking about? Because eternity is at stake here. Just having intellectual belief and doing really good things is not enough. So what is the belief here? Believing in Jesus is the belief he is who he says he is and did what he said he did. That's belief in Jesus. It's a matter of obedience. So what were some of the things that Jesus said? Jesus said, I'm God. We talked about that in John 1, right? He says, I'm God. You must believe in the deity of Jesus Christ in order to be saved. He also said in John 14, verse 6, we'll see this in a few months. He says, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus says, you can't know God without me. Jesus said, you can't make your own way to God. You can't make up your own truth about God. You can't make up your own life. It is only through me that you can know God. And see, in America, it's fairly normal for us to believe in Jesus, though that's becoming more and more not the case. Our culture is becoming more and more anti-culture. Like I said a minute ago, Marilyn and I lived in Alabama for a while, and everyone in Alabama believes in Jesus. They do. They believe in Jesus, and they believe in college football. Those are two things they believe in. And Nick Saban is their God, I mean football coach. And the belief that Jesus is talking about is not the same belief as historical figure. Some of you, if you're, I don't think we have, well, Mike, that Mike understands when I say that. Nick Saban is their God. Um, the belief that Jesus is talking about here is not historical belief. Believing in Jesus is wanting him more than ourselves. That's the bottom line. Because as we understand what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ, he must increase, we must decrease. It's not about us, so we must want Jesus more than ourselves. We must want Jesus more than our sin. We must want Jesus more than our comfort. We must want Jesus more than our way of life or our lifestyle. And here's the reality for most, uh, not most, but a lot of Americans. We, we believe in Jesus. We believe in his existence. But we don't want him to affect the way we're living. We want to have Jesus, as the bumper sticker says, Jesus is our co-pilot. We want Jesus off to the side. He's there when we need it. He's there when we're having relationship issues and we're having financial problems. And when we need something, Jesus is there and we treat him almost nothing more than a genie. But we must believe in that Jesus is supreme. He is above all, and we're just his servants. Believing in Jesus is wanting him so much that we are serious about growing in our knowledge of him, that we're going to follow him with abandonment and wanting him more than anything else. And here's what this belief leads to. Belief in Jesus, this saving belief in Jesus, it results in life change. There's a spiritual 180. It's called Repentance. Belief leads to repentance. Unfortunately, in our Christian circles today, there's a pushback on, is repentance really necessary for salvation? Which is heretical. I hope you understand that. That's heretical. Repentance is absolutely necessary for salvation. But that belief leads to repentance, and that leads to life change. So my question here this morning is, have 
you believed, have we believed in Jesus to where we can show in our lives that our lives have been changed? Not that we're perfect, not that we have it all together, but can we point to our lives and prove my life has been changed through the work of Christ? Has there been a time in our lives when the Holy Spirit has opened our eyes called us to salvation, the work of God in our hearts to understand who Jesus is and that belief leads to life change. And then if you are a believer, if you are a Christian, a follower of Jesus Christ, find your joy and fulfillment in pointing people to Christ. In our individual lives, are we making Jesus more and more obvious and are we finding joy in that? As a church, are we functioning as that best man? I love that picture, that illustration that John the Baptist gives. Are we as the church here at Leewood Church, are we functioning as the best man in preparing the bride for Christ? Because here's the reality. You and I did not die for the church. I have to remind myself, Adam, you did not die for this church. Jesus died for the church. He gets the glory. It's not about us. It's about Christ. If we believe Jesus to where our lives are changed, and we believe and hold in his supremacy, our lives are going to be changed, changed to the point where we can say, he must increase, and I must decrease. Bow your heads with me. God, we've dealt with some heavy stuff here this morning. We've done some heavy lifting as your people, and I pray that your word would do the work in our lives. And we acknowledge this morning that, that you are, Jesus, you are supreme, that you are above all, all things in your hands. And if we're a follower, a believer in you, we are no more than your servants. Help us to understand our place compared to you. Change us. Bring humility in our lives. Help us as individuals to decrease so that you can increase. I pray you would help us as a church here at Leewood. Help us to decrease. Help us to fade into, into the background and for you to increase. And then, God, I pray if there's anyone here today, maybe they've gone to church their whole lives, but they've never understood what it means to truly believe you. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would open their eyes, remove the spiritual blinders, soften their hearts, and show them their need for Jesus. And then, God, I pray as we continue to study your word, not just here on Sundays, but individually during the week, that you would use your word to strengthen our belief in you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.